it never trickles down. When you give corporations money, the workers don't see it. When consumers have more money, the corporations benefit, right? We spend that money in the economy and there are huge spillovers, but the reverse is not true. And so Groundwork is really founded to push out that progressive vision for the economy. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Lindsay Owens, who's the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative, which pulls together economic policy experts, progressive movement leaders, and activists on the front lines of progressive causes in communities across the country to develop and advance a coherent progressive economic worldview. This is a good idea. Lindsay previously held senior roles working for Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representatives Pramila Jayapal and Keith Ellison. She's a PhD sociologist whose expertise is in the economic consequences of the Great Recession. We had a good conversation about her path to running Groundwork Collaborative and what they're up to now. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Lindsay Owens of the Groundwork Collaborative. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Lindsay, hi. How are you today? Good, thanks. It's nice to be here. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Lindsay Owens. I'm the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., dedicated to advancing a coherent, progressive view of the economy. I got to D.C. almost a decade ago now and have worked in the House and the Senate. I worked for Senator Elizabeth Warren as an economic policy advisor and over on the House side for now Attorney General Keith Ellison and for Congressional Progressive Caucus co-chair Pramila Jayapal. Before getting into politics and policy in Washington, I spent time in academia. I did uh, some work at Stanford. I'm an economic sociologist by training. Uh, Spent a lot of time studying poverty and inequality and did a dissertation on the housing crash. Wonderful credentials for a progressive policymaker at this point in time. Where'd you grow up? What's the background that you bring to all this? I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm a long ways from home. And it's been interesting to sort of see my home city change quite a bit. Uh, Nashville was definitely not an it city when I lived there (laughs) as a child. uh, It's a little bit different now. Was it a political family? I mean, Nashville is really not known as a political town, at least in D.C. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that for a long time, when I thought about my political education, I sort of started it with the Great Recession and the academic work I was doing on the housing crisis, which you know leads me to take a job with Senator Warren. But if I take a step back and think about the long view of my political education, it probably starts with my grandmother. My dad's side of the family was very conservative, evangelical Christian, um, Southern Baptist type, depending on who you talk to in the family and where they went to church. My mom's side of the family was more, you know, blue dog Democrat, I would say. And my grandmother was a public school teacher in Nashville, and she was involved in the Tennessee Democratic Women's Association. And she got quite engaged in the Clinton election through the Tennessee Democratic Women's work for Vice President Gore. And so she did a lot of volunteering for that campaign. And as a result, I think got a couple tickets to the inauguration or some of the inaugural festivities and 
you know, took, took me as her plus one, my first flight, my first trip out of Tennessee, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards was a trip to, to Washington, DC with my, with my grandmother to go to the, the Clinton inauguration. Was that the first Clinton, the 92? It was was the first. Yeah. It was a pretty incredible time. I remember it really well. I still have a lot of kind of like, you know, memorabilia and paraphernalia and the front page of the Washington Post. I still have the Washington Post from, you know, inauguration day and a few other items like that. Her work and volunteering in the political space, I think probably set that early tone. And my mom was pretty engaged, not formally in politics, but she, you know, consumed a lot of media. She thought a lot about politics. I remember when Al Gore lost Tennessee in 2000 by like, I don't know, it was like 50,000, 75,000 votes or something like that. She was just heartbroken and felt betrayed by the state and thought maybe we should leave the state. And she was quite focused on that. I mean, that was kind of the the end of the party in Tennessee. To some extent, there are a lot. there's a lot of energy in progressive politics in Tennessee right now. Um, and I think there are folks who are interested in rebuilding that that base, but uh, there's also a lot of work to do. Oh, yeah. So you went to UPenn and, and then on to Stanford for grad school. At what point along the way would you say you took on this progressive identity that leads you to work for some of the leading progressive lights in Congress? Yeah, I wasn't super politically engaged in college. I was engaged in a lot of social issues. I thought a lot about healthcare justice and healthcare issues. When I got to California, I was in the sort of southern part of the Bay Area, the San Jose area, and it was one of the epicenters of the housing crash. And the devastation was incredible. The foreclosures that were piling up, the folks who were in default and worried about uh, being foreclosed on, the, the levels of unemployment that you saw there were pretty incredible. After a year or two, it became clear to me that I didn't really want to study anything else but the impacts of the recession, the unequal impacts of the recession. And I started following the policy responses to the Great Recession really, really closely. And I was frankly really disillusioned by them. I was disillusioned by the fact that, you know, Congress didn't put the cram down bill through. I was disillusioned by the fact that. ARA was, you know, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was, you know, paltry and didn't uh, come anywhere close to meeting the needs of Americans in that moment. And I, you know, started to both be doing my academic research, but also uh, getting engaged more on the policy side. I mean, the, the other thing, frankly, that I think really galvanized my sort of interest in progressive politics was Occupy Wall Street. I was pretty engaged in Occupy uh, in the Bay Area. And I think a lot of the lens that I view politics through comes from from that time. And frankly, just thinking about who was on the winning end (laughs) of the bank bailouts and who was on the losing end of the foreclosure crisis. And it was really stark in California and in many other places, but that's that's where I happened to be at the time. That'll politicize you when you're looking at that kind of thing up close. Tell me about how you came to pick the topic you did for your dissertation and what you wrote about there. So I did a couple of things in grad school. The first is that I worked on a sort of seminal book about the Great Recession. And through that work, I studied with, or I wrote a chapter with and got sort of connected with an economist at NYU, Ed Wolf, who studied wealth inequality. I became really engaged in the potential impacts of the recession for wealth inequality, in particular, the racial wealth gap. So I would say that's one piece of it, um, thinking about housing as really a critical site for wealth building and thinking about the number of black and brown homeowners who got into the housing market in the lead up to the crash and really felt like they had built something that might last only to have the rug pulled out from under them. The other thing that I became really interested in was the kind of like nitty gritty technocratic bureaucracy of the response to the housing crisis, which was the Home Affordable Modification Program, the HAMP program. And as I started to see advertisements around the Bay Area for these housing counseling centers who would 
help you apply for a mortgage modification. And I sort of wondered, like, what's that about? And so I actually went to one of the clinics. You know, it's an hour-long presentation about a Byzantine bureaucratic nightmare that is a mortgage modification. (laughs) And I thought, huh, like, this is interesting. I sort of want to see if this thing is going to work. And so I did a combination of sort of quantitative research on the effects of you know, on the likelihood of getting a mortgage modification and also some like ethnographic and qualitative research where I actually posted up at a housing counseling center in San Jose for a year and a half and worked with homeowners as they came in and tried to apply for mortgage modifications. And, you know, what became crystal clear is very, very, very few people got them because ultimately the decision around whether or not you qualified for a mortgage modification was really left up to servicers and there wasn't enough um, of a mandate or enough political heft uh, to get folks the help they needed. You know, there were a whole bunch of other like bureaucratic problems. Like for instance, unemployment insurance didn't count as income. And if you were unemployed, that meant that you didn't have enough income to qualify for a mortgage modification. Right. So it was just, just this incredibly difficult policy solution and, you know, I was really, as many Americans who were going through this were frustrated by it. And I felt like there must be a better way. So I landed in DC working for Elizabeth Warren, who, who certainly who agrees, some ideas. Yeah. agrees that there's a better way to do mortgage modification. I mean, she was a big proponent of the cram down bill. There's a narrative out there that the housing crash, the, the crash in general, was caused by policy that was too pro-housing for people on the margin. Almost feels like some people think people didn't deserve to have the houses that they obtained through, you know, in a lot of cases, pretty tricky financing, right? How do you see that lead up through your lens? You know, it reminds me a lot of the conversation that we're having today around unemployment insurance, right? This idea that somehow it's, you know, folks who are out of the labor market collecting unemployment insurance that are responsible for the fact that employers aren't offering high enough wages to attract workers to their restaurants and bars and hotels and, you know, various other entities. There was, you know, a very pervasive narrative during the housing crash that this was the fault of greedy borrowers who had dollar signs in their eyes thinking about all the money they were going to make by getting into the housing market. And then the market came crashing down and they were out of luck. But like, it wasn't speculation that caused the crash. It was their sort of greedy interest. in. When I talk now to business owners about on the other subject, they're all complaining they can't hire, just like you alluded to. It doesn't exactly ring true to me that that you can't raise your wages, raise your prices, you know, figure out in a capitalist way how to deal with it. But you hear it all over. Yeah, it's a pretty pervasive narrative right now. I think there are obviously pockets of, of jobs that people aren't that interested in taking right now. There are a lot of jobs that feel really dangerous in a global pandemic. Just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean that Uh, You don't have family members or children in school who aren't vaccinated, who you may feel you're putting at risk if you're working in the service industry. I think there are a lot of good reasons why folks aren't interested in those jobs. Um, Maybe they're not interested in those jobs because they don't feel secure anymore because they, you know, were were laid off for nine months or a year or a year and a half. um, And they're looking for something different. But I don't think, you know, the evidence around unemployment insurance as being the culprit here is really thin. And insofar as there is any evidence, yeah, you know, it suggests really, really small impacts. This uh, inability to find workers is not the result of unemployment insurance benefits, you know, full stop. So you write your dissertation. A lot of people after doing that look for academic job. What was your move? I was planning to go into academia and towards the end of writing my dissertation, I you know, have really been following Senator Warren's Senate race. <laughs> I, well, I have been following her sort of like work with John Frank, her work on, you know, TARP, her 
building out the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and then ultimately, you know, not being offered the top job there, and running a sort of like long shot, but ultimately incredibly successful Senate race in Massachusetts. And I actually sent in like a cold email through the like Warren for Senate, like volunteer site to try to get plugged into her campaign and never heard back. (laughs) And then I decided that there was this really great fellowship through the American Sociological Association. And, you know, they select one fellow a year. And then once you get the American Sociological Association fellowship, you can work for anyone in Congress who will have you. And you're like effectively free labor because you're getting paid through the fellowship program. So my bright idea was like, well, I couldn't get in on the campaign, but I'll like wait until she gets into the Senate office and then I'll apply for this fellowship and then I'll try to get in. It was a little bit of a crazy plan. It, you know, it worked in the end, but you know, I was really impressed with the work she was doing around the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I was really impressed with the way that she talked about the economy in such an accessible way. You know, one of the hallmark moments of her Senate campaign was this sort of like impromptu speech she gives at like, I don't know if it was like a volunteer event or like a donor fundraising slash volunteer event, but she's like in the home of a volunteer. Like she gets this question, she gives this off the cuff speech and she says, you didn't build that, right? Like the business owner didn't build the roads that. I remember that. Yes. Get his goods. Um, you know, to market. And she really just articulated and I thought this really, you know, provocative, but also clear, plain spoken way, our shared responsibility as a country, what it means to prioritize public investment. I mean, really previewing a lot of the debate that we're having right now. Um, And I was really drawn to that and wanted the opportunity to work for her. And I also definitely told my advisors that it was one year and then I'd be right back on the academic job market. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I was lying to myself or lying to them, but I never looked back. (laughs) I take it that you found the work then, which you stayed at with her in various capacities, something desirable. What was it that you liked about it? When you work for someone like Senator Warren, you get to do two things. And this is not the case with everyone in Congress, everyone in the House, or everyone in the Senate. You get to do the policy work, which everyone who works for a member of Congress by and large gets to do. You get to prep them for committee hearings. You get to read bills and offer vote recommendations. You get to write and design legislation. If you're lucky, you get to pass some legislation. But you get to do a second thing with someone like Senator Warren or someone like Keith Ellison or someone like Pramila Jayapal which is you get to shape the conversation and the work that you do for someone with a megaphone like that, you write speeches, you write tweets, you plan for a viral hearing clip, you know, Uh, you write a draft of a video that will go viral. You write talking points for a meeting with the president of the United States at the time, president Obama, or you write, talking points for a meeting with Secretary of Labor Perez or, you know, Jeff Zients or whoever else, you know, we were writing for, um, you know, during the period of time when I was, you know, in Senator Warren's office. And those types of more public speeches or conversations or messaging opportunities do really shape the conversation. And, you know, we definitely, during the tail end were you know, putting a lot of pressure on the Obama administration around trade and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But we also were really working side by side with the Obama administration on, you know, one of the topics I worked on was their effort around the fiduciary rule. And, you know, we woke up every morning putting pressure on the financial services industry and the investment advisor industry. And, you know, we put out a letter out of her office and 50 financial outlets covered it, right? Like you woke up the next morning and it was in Fortune and it was in the Wall Street Journal and it was in the Washington Post and it was in, it was the header on Politico's morning money, right? And everyone, you know, in town saw the frame that you brought to that topic that day. And, you know, more broadly, folks who are consuming that content and that media outside of Washington too. So I think... I never did the super technocratic work of just sort of like sitting in the committee, being the expert on one issue. 
but I got to do the work, uh, the sort of like sweet spot and the Venn diagram of the legislative work that I love, the kind of policy wonk work and the message and political work. A lot of the people in the financial services world don't much care for her. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. Do you think they are ever right that she's uh, ever wrong? I got yelled at quite a bit when I worked for Senator Warren. By her? Oh, gosh, no. no. <laughs> I don't think I've even ever seen the senator raise her voice. I got yelled at a lot by folks in the financial services industry who would leave angry voicemails or come in for a meeting where they're planning to sweet talk you only to sort of lecture you and then offer a stern warning about who's in charge in this town on the way out the door, right? I would say two things. The first is I think she fights fire with fire. And I don't think that you beat back the outsized interest in Washington by whining and dining these guys and then asking them for like a slightly tighter regulation on one thing in the SEC. That's not going to work. It's never going to work. It's what they would like to happen. And it's what has happened for a long time. I also think that the Senator, and I think this applies to, you know, Congressman Ellison as well, who's now attorney general and takes on a lot of these corporate power issues in the state of Minnesota. You know, she also has like a very sophisticated understanding of like, the courts and the regulatory process. And so she really knows what the plan is there, right? Oh, they say they're supportive of this legislation, but secretly they're lobbying the SEC to totally unravel this loophole that they're going to drive a truck through, right? I think that's why they don't like her because she matches them in terms of force, but also in terms of like smarts. You don't get the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau without someone like Senator Warren. You also don't get the types of folks who are at the SEC right now, um, you know, Gensler and various other folks. Um, and I think that that, that scares people. And I think that's probably a good thing. There was a quite a change as a result of the 2016 election on many things that Senator cares about that you care about. How did that all hit you? I mean, working in Washington under Trump was a challenge. It was certainly not as challenging as being someone who suffered at the hands of Trump, right? It wasn't as challenging as like being a kid locked in a cage. It was not as challenging as being someone who lost their health care or anything of that nature. So I'm always like hesitant to sort of, you know, not over dramatize the like impact of like being a Democrat in Washington under the Trump, under the Trump administration. But it certainly changed my view of how to be effective in Washington um, and how to how to move the needle. Um, you know, defense became incredibly important. Blocking and tackling became incredibly important. During the first year of the Trump administration, the thing that I spent a lot of time working on, or really just the first two months, um, it was over pretty quickly. We we spent a huge amount of time fighting the labor nominee, Andy Puster. He was this. I mean, comic book villain to run the Department of Labor. He was a fast food tycoon who had all of these outstanding OSHA violations because his employees were burning themselves with hot oil on fryers in the back of his restaurants, Carl's Jr. and whatnot. He had all sorts of wage theft issues. He had like written a book where he compared, um, I forget the exact term, but like, you know, he basically talked about his employees as worse than disposable and as, you know, costs to be minimized. So he was, you know, a real comic book villain um, to head the Department of Labor, uh, opposed the minimum wage. I think he had unpaid taxes on his own domestic labor for his house. He had a domestic abuse issue with an ex-wife, you know, the whole thing. But the most important thing is like, this was a true fox in a hen house situation. I mean, there were a ton of bad Trump appointees, but this one was just really comically bad. <laughs> there were so many on that level. There, there really were. There really were. Um, you know, so we, we went all in on that. I mean, we worked with SEIU. We worked with the National Employment Law Project. We worked with... Senator Patty Murray in the committee, we worked with, um, you know, other folks on the outside and just really, really hit hard on that. And I think it did a lot of good. Um, 
the Trump administration was, you know, terrible on labor in a lot of ways, but not nearly as bad as it would have been had we not started with Puzder, knocked him out, then had a long delay before someone else gets renominated and, you know, put into place. Um, you know, they were not as aggressively effective as they could have been out of the gate. Another bright spot in the Trump administration for, you know, for the left was that it really forced folks to do a little bit of an autopsy and think about why that happened, why someone like Trump gets into office, the types of economic anguish and racism and all of the things that, um, you know, bring him to the fore, I think folks spent a lot of time thinking about. And I think as a result, the, you know, candidates who ran for president in the Democratic primary brought a new level of energy, a new sharpness around the economy, around policy that is benefiting us right now. President Biden himself made a number of commitments that were seen being borne out right now that I think are the result of some of that, like thinking and learning and reorganizing and self-reflection during the Trump years. Why did you move to the House side to the two progressive Congress members that you were deputy chief of staff for, LD? Yeah, I moved to work with Keith for two reasons. The first is that I really wanted to be on the House side when we took the House. (laughs) Um, And I thought it would be great to get over there and learn the ropes and like see what it was like to be in the majority. I got to Washington at the very tail end of like September of 2014, and we lost the Senate that November. (laughs) So I never got to taste the majority. Um, So that was reason number one. Reason number two is that I was really interested in uh, doing the financial services work with him. He was pretty high ranking on the financial services committee with Chairwoman Waters. And I was interested in leading that work for him. I have been doing mostly labor policy work for the senator, which I have continued to do and love, but I was eager to get back into doing some of my housing work. And Congresswoman Jayapal, why to her? Oh, that, that's very easy. Two, two reasons. The first, the Progressive Caucus. Um, she was at the helm in the Progressive Caucus when we took over the House. Um, it was a really exciting time. It was a dizzying time. I mean, if you remember the early days of 2018, the squad had just been elected there. Uh, you know, a lot happened during those first couple months of 2018. Um, but I was interested in, you know, doing exactly what I sort of just said, which is, you know, seeing what the progressive caucus in the house could accomplish during a Trump administration, during a moment when we didn't have the Senate either, but starting to lay the groundwork with some of those policies, starting to push the caucus to the left to get some of these economic and democracy reform policies through the caucus. Um, so I was really interested in, you know, working with her uh, in her role as co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. You left Congress, though. What was next for you? So I spent about uh, a year and a half uh, doing a little bit of consulting work. And primarily, I did work on the pandemic recession. So I did policy work for a number of folks who were designing policies to combat the worst impacts of uh, the COVID recession. Three projects I can name that I spent a lot of time on that I think were pretty valuable. The first is I worked for Sarah Nelson, who runs the Flight Attendants Union. And I started working for her right after the pandemic hit. And I mean, she is just an extraordinary leader and an extraordinary progressive thinker. Uh, So it was like, you know, when someone asked if I might be interested in working on her project, I mean, I said, yes, no questions asked. I would have done it for free. (laughs) (laughs) She sees around corners and she knew exactly what was going to happen to the airline industry when the pandemic hit. Um, and she needed a plan to make sure that her flight attendants were uh, not laid off in mass. And we put one together, her policy savvy, her savvy on the Hill. The flight attendants effectively got a Denmark-style employment package in the Trump Cares Act. They were able to be grounded. The planes were grounded. The flight attendants weren't on flights, but they were still getting paid. 
Um, and that's what many, many countries did during the pandemic. They effectively sort of took over the payrolls of, of employers and let the workers, you know, stay home, but continue to get paid. So that's what the flight attendants were able to put together. And obviously it had very immediate benefits for her union members. But I think what we also saw on the flip side is that when it was time to sort of quote unquote, reopen the economy, aviation was ready to go. The planes were maintained. The flight attendants were ready to, you know, ready to board. There there weren't these price spikes that we're seeing in some industries where um, it's taken a little while to ramp back up on supply chains. Um, I think it's a real success story in the, um, in the pandemic economy. So, you know, that was far and away the best, the best project that I worked on, but I also did some really great work on the special drawing rights, which is a reserve currency that the international monetary fund has, um, that they can disperse during particularly difficult economic moments and a decent amount of work on the Save the 600 campaign, which was the campaign to extend the, um, unemployment insurance benefits the pandemic unemployment compensation um, permanently. What's the founding story for the Groundwork Collaborative and what is it? Sure. So the Groundwork Collaborative was founded in 2018 um, by Michael Linden, who is now in the administration. I worked closely with Michael when he was working for Senator Patty Murray and I was in Senator Warren's office. Um, We worked together on a number of projects. I had the pleasure of helping him found the Groundwork Collaborative in 2018. Um, When Congressman Ellison decided to run for Attorney General, he was in Minnesota. I stayed in D.C. I had a little bit more free time on my hands and, um, you know, used it to work with Michael to stand up this incredible organization, which I now have the privilege of, of leading. The theory behind the Groundwork Collaborative was relatively simple. It's that you can't fight something with nothing. (laughs) And the conservative view of the economy, whatever you want to call it, neoliberalism, trickle-down economics, Reaganomics, um, was ascendant. It was not just sort of like hit you over the head dominant. It was so dominant that it was like the air we breathe. It was the assumed view of how the economy works. It's a view that obviously conservatives held, but it's a view that many Democrats had internalized. Conservative Democrats maybe held it sort of full bore, but many Democrats, even when they talked about progressive policies, used conservative talking points. For instance, talking about something like the child tax credit as tax cut rather than cash assistance. (laughs) A lot of these um, sort of conservative views on the economy have been really internalized. And so the Groundwork Collaborative was stood up to offer a compelling counter narrative. Um, Democrats had a lot of policies, a long list of policies in many cases, but they didn't aggregate up to a coherent theory of the economy and how the economy works. Winning one policy campaign wasn't really having spillovers for the next policy campaign. You win a minimum wage fight. It wasn't like suddenly when people understood that the economy works better when people have more money to spend, and therefore we should design all of our policies around that. It was sort of like a one-off campaign, and then we go win another one-off campaign. So Groundwork is really founded to offer that compelling counter-narrative and to really remind folks at every turn when we do see the, the counter-policies that are emblematic of the counter-narrative working, that the reason is because it never trickles down. When you give corporations money, the workers don't see it. When consumers have more money, the corporations benefit, right? We spend that money in the economy and there are huge spillovers, but the reverse is not true. And so Groundwork is really founded to push out that progressive vision for the economy. If you have to articulate succinctly what is a coherent progressive view of the economy. I assume that's something you have to do all the time. What is it? The shortest version um, that I can offer is what we say at Groundwork all the time, which is that we are the economy. The economy is what we need, what we buy, what we consume, what we produce. And the economy works best when we have additional funds to spend, when we have what we need to be successful at work, when we have 
what we need to be successful at home, whether that's caregiving, whether that's um, income supports for a period of unemployment, whether that's higher wages at work, all of those things are what's helpful for us to build uh, an economy that is fairer, an economy that is more just, and an economy where you get GDP growth and low unemployment and high consumer demand. So are you trying to say that the economy is people, not businesses? A people-centered economy is one way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And would you say that the conservative or the more, I don't know, prevalent view up to this point is that it is about the businesses and how they're doing sort of personified? Yeah, it's not just that it's about the businesses. The the sort of neoliberal view of the economy is also a very non-human version of the economy, right? Like this is a more anthropomorphic view of the economy. This idea that the economy is, you know, this thing that is controlled by certain types of people who understand the economy, like business owners, like uh, folks who work on NASDAQ, right? That the economy is the stock market and that the strength of the economy can be judged by the stock market. And it takes away all of the millions and billions of transactions that you and I are a part of that actually aggregate up to what we see in those indicators. When people were designing policies, it feels like to me in the 90s or beyond, the Republicans maybe brought to that this idea of incentives and how important that was to how people react and how businesses react. What's wrong with that idea or what is better about looking at it from a different angle? I think incentives are tied to this idea that we're all free market actors and agents acting rationally in an economic system and responding rationally to market forces like supply and demand. And the truth is there are a lot of factors that shape our behavior in the economy that are not seen in your traditional uh, supply curves. (laughs) Um, Power is a great one. The idea that you can just vote with your feet in the labor market. Uh, If you don't like a job or you want higher wages, you just go to the next place and grab a job. Well, there are a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen. One, um, you know, monopsony and other forms of anti-competitive positions in the labor market. So, for example, you may have to sign a non-compete, which means you literally can't vote with your feet. Or maybe you live in a town where um, because of globalization and monopoly, um, you know, Main Street has evaporated and there's only one or two large employers. You're either in retail and working at the Walmart or you're in healthcare and you work at the, at the hospital. How are you going to vote with your feet uh, in that situation, right? So I think the, you know, the neoclassical view of economics really doesn't take a lot of the factors that we see um, every day into account, power being one of them. Um, power also shows up in Washington, right? A lot of the way our markets work um, is determined by regulatory policy. And regulatory policy is frequently determined via capture through you know, special interests. This idea that somehow uh, you know, the government is staying out of the market and the free market is sort of plugging along unabated on its own is, you know, is really not, is not what we see as consumers. It's not what we see as workers. It's not what we see in our communities. Tell me about, like, how does Groundwork work? How many people are there? What do they spend their time doing? How are you funded? Tell me more about the enterprise itself. Sure. So the Groundwork Collaborative, we have a C3 arm and a C4 arm. So we do some more politically oriented work as well as some, um, you know, traditional nonprofit work. We are about 20 people. We have three primary programmatic teams. Um, So we have a research and policy team that's run by our incredible chief economist uh, and managing director of research and policy, Rakeem Maboud. And we have a campaigns and partnerships team that's run by uh, Claire, who runs our coalition work and our partnership work. And then we also have a great communications team because ultimately, um, you know, Groundwork's aims are around disseminating a progressive view of the economy. And we do that through a number of um, communications channels. We're up to a couple things right now. Uh, one of the things that we're up to is running an 80 
plus member coalition of progressive, faith-based, small business, labor, state-based, and federal policy organizations. Uh, It's called Prosperous. Uh, You can find out more about Prosperous uh, at our website, which is www.prosperus.org. And the Prosperous Coalition is laser-focused on uh, making the case for a big, big, big policy change around overdue, economically sound, popular public investments. We're big supporters of the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan. We think those are need to haves. <laughs> we think there's a lot more that needs to be done. And we're really building the case for those public investments, whether it's in infrastructure or in care or in climate or in racial justice. Returning to the pre-pandemic normal of 2020 is not enough. A lot of things were broken about the pre-pandemic economy, including the fact that we still had lingering inequality from the recovery in the Great Recession. <laughs> um, so we've got a long way to go. And that coalition is really built around the affirmative, positive vision for what society can look like with those public investments. So that's what we're doing on the campaigns and partnership side. And then on the research and policy side, we do a lot of convening with other economic policy experts across the movement to get folks singing from the same hymnal. So we run a private fellows program of experts from all sorts of think tanks in town and across the country. Um, We are thinking a lot about alternative benchmarks for the economy. How will we know when the economy truly works for all of us? What would it look like to have a macro model that models the economy differently um, and that builds different assumptions in to what is good for the economy, what grows GDP, et cetera. Um, What would it look like if we measured our recovery according to the black unemployment rate? And we said that we take our foot off the gas and stop investing um, in uh, safety net expansions, as well as, you know, monetary policy when the black unemployment rate was down to three or 4% rather than getting the average unemployment rate down and being fine with the black unemployment rate staying at crisis levels. So we do a lot of work there. We've spent a lot of time on unemployment insurance. We're currently running a big ad campaign in Washington, D.C. Um, around continuing the expanded unemployment insurance benefits after September. Um, there are still going to be people unemployed after September, uh, and they're going to be disproportionately black and brown, some of them long-term unemployed, and they're still going to need that, that support. Um, and that support is not just helpful to those individuals, it's good for the economy. Uh, people During COVID, states with more generous UI benefits were recovering faster. It's good human policy and it's good economic policy. It feels to me like a lot of what you're suggesting you're for, Democrats in the House would vote for and have vote for. A vast majority, if not all the Democrats in the Senate would vote for. The Biden administration is generally for and pushing a lot of this. We're stymied by not having big enough majorities in the Senate. And we know that the Senate's tilted against Democrats by its nature, representing small conservative states, over-representing them. How do we get out of this straitjacket, this political straitjacket, to do the things that you and your collaborative want to do? You know, obviously, like, step number one... (laughs) We've got to end the filibuster uh, and we've got to commit to a number of democracy reforms at all levels of government. Um, I'm not the right person to, to talk about democracy reform. There are a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am on that topic. However, I think actually that uh, policy can be really good politics. And the policy that I'm actually really excited about right now is the expansion of the child tax credit starting in on July 15th, you know, families with children almost universally are going to start getting monthly checks. You know, the size of the check depends on a couple of things, including how many kids you have. Uh, but that's going to happen every month. 
It's a really big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is that I really think it demonstrates the kind of worldview that Groundwork is trying to push, which is that, you know, they sold us for decades on this idea that when you gave corporations more money, it would trickle down to us. And it never did. What the Biden administration is doing is saying, we're going to give the money directly to you. We're going to give it to families. And what's going to happen starting in mid-July is you're going to see an uptick in retail sales growth. You're going to see an uptick in travel and tourism. You're going to see women picking up more hours at work because they've got a little bit more money to cover caregiving expenses. You're going to see that increased you know, consumption resulting in demand for additional workers at all sorts of establishments. You're going to see Main Street benefiting, small businesses benefiting, large businesses are going to benefit too. That money is going to come every month. And folks are going to understand if we do our job right, that that's what happens when Democrats are in office. And that money is going to go to folks in rural America. Folks in rural Maine are going to get that money. Folks in rural West Virginia are going to get that money. Um, This is not money that only goes to the base. It goes to everyone. And I think those types of policies can really generate a virtuous cycle. And I think people are going to associate that with what it means for the government to invest in families. I think that's going to generate more goodwill for spending and the jobs plan and the families plan later in the fall. I think it's going to generate more goodwill for the political process and less cynicism about what government can do. People are going to see it every month up close in their bank accounts. And my view is that that's not the reason to do the child tax credit. The reasons to do the child tax credit are clear. It's really good for our economy and it's really good for kids. Like educational outcomes are better. Parents are happier. Hunger declines, child poverty declines, but I think there will be real political benefits to that as well. And I think that's one way that we reshape the politics in this country is we really demonstrate what we can do and what we're for uh, and we deliver. And I think this is an example of of Democrats delivering. We are going to go into the midterms still recovering from the COVID recession. It's been pretty brutal for many people. It's It's going to take a long time to unwind. I was reading 50% less employment in New York City than before. I mean, just some places worse than others. Do you think that there's enough policy help to have people generally across the country view Democrats that way and view the politics of governing progressively, positively enough to keep the House, for example, and expand or hold the Senate? I don't want to be the person who makes the political (laughs) prognostications of whether or not we're going to keep the House and the Senate. I've spent, I'm just sort of endlessly optimistic in this realm. Every cycle since I got to Washington, I thought we would, we would retake the Senate. (laughs) (laughs) You're the opposite of me. I'm endlessly pessimistic. (laughs) I'm endlessly rooting, but I'm, I'm always uh, worried. Yeah, I'm not really sure where I get my information. You know, it's an unfair question, honestly. The prognostication aspect of it, the the patterns are bad for parties in power in difficult times. It's going to be a difficult time. I think you're probably right that that things like the child care tax credit are going to reduce the pain and therefore help the governing party. Who knows what else is going to be in play when we get there. But I mean, I guess I'm trying more to ask the question, like from a policy standpoint, how is our economy now and how is it looking going forward, given what we've done for it and what we may or may not be able to do follow on, given the politics? Yeah, I definitely don't think that the child tax credit is a panacea. Uh, and I don't think it is going to. Uh, it's helpful. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, the truth is there are deep, deep structural problems in our economy. The imbalance of power in our economy is incredible. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, workers can't unionize in most places in America is a real problem. Um, there are a lot of structural issues in the economy that need to be dealt with. Many of them, I think, are going to start to be dealt with through the work of progressives throughout the administration, folks like Lena Khan at FTC, folks like hopefully eventually Rohit Chopra at the CFPB, folks like Gary Gensler at SEC. That work is slower. 
Um, you know, you don't see the benefits of that in February with the American Rescue Plan. You see it over time. Um, and I think that, you know, that's all going to be really important. I think there are two big lessons of the Great Recession. Um, the first was that uh, the risks of going too small far outweigh the risks of going too big. I think, you know, cautiously optimistic, it feels like the Biden administration has really learned that lesson. The American Rescue Plan, the initial size of the proposal, $1.9 trillion, what passes, a little over $1.9 trillion, um, I think really demonstrates that they learned lesson one. We're not out of the woods on that lesson, right? That's also about getting the balance right with monetary policy and whether or not you you know, get too nervous about inflation and risk pulling up on the recovery on the employment side. But the second lesson, I think, from 2008, uh, the verdict is kind of still out on. And, and the lesson there is that recoveries, you know, bounce backs aren't evenly distributed throughout the economy. We had an extraordinarily unequal recovery from the Great Recession. Uh, you know, Black unemployment staying at persistently high levels since the Great Recession um, through, through to today. Um, massive disparities in housing wealth that still hasn't been fully recovered. You know, the list, the list is long. And I think the question, you know, for the Biden administration is, what are they going to do, you know, between now and the midterms? And this is more important than politics. But of course, I think, you know, they keep the house, they can do more of this. You know, the recovery takes longer than 18 more months. What are they going to do to make sure this is a more even recovery? Like, how are they going to really target folks who um, are going to have a harder time getting back into the labor market? How are they going to make sure that we take that on? I think there's a lot of work to do there. And I think that's going to be an important part of the next 18 months. So you got 20 people with a great mission to a really needed mission, I think, to change the narrative about just a really core thing that we need to, to change. But you're up against quite some forces. Who do you see as your best allies in making this happen? How do you get enough firepower to help change the direction of the country? Yeah, that's a great question. We have a couple of different, you know, I guess people we view or groups that we view as audiences for our work. One of them is other kind of economic policy experts, wonks, if you will. One of them is the media. Another is the work that we do with grass tops organizations. Another is policymakers. And the way that a small organization makes an outsized impact is through partnerships, through really close partnerships. And we've built some really incredible partnerships since Groundworks founding with Folks like the Economic Policy Institute, the Roosevelt Institute, Demos, Community Change, uh, Economic Security Project, Washington Center on Equitable Growth, um, you know, to name a few of the partners in this space. But we also work with folks with a much larger footprint throughout the country. Folks like, you know, Stacey Abrams' shop, SEEP, uh, the Southern Economic Advancement Project. Uh, we work really closely with the Working Families Party. We work closely with state and local activists like Make It Work Nevada and others. Uh, and I think that, you know, working with and through allies gives us the ability to do a lot more than we could do in our small virtual office at the moment. <laughs> how about for you yourself? How good of a fit is this for you? How long do you think you want to be doing this? And where do you want to take yourself in the long run? I love working at the Groundwork Collaborative. I have been a believer in the Groundwork Collaborative since the very first conversation I had with Michael London, the original executive director, when this was an idea that fit on a napkin. <laughs> I was all in for building it out and have stayed you know, on and off throughout Groundwork's founding, um, a part of the organization, both formally and informally, and was just thrilled to you know, accept the executive director role in this moment. I think in many ways, Groundwork was built for this moment for a fight around whether or not full employment or inflation would determine the fate of our recovery. A moment where Assyrian uh, deficit hawk naysayers like folks at the consumer or um, at the Committee for the Responsible Federal Budget would you know, run the tables in Washington and diminish the art of the possible for whether or not a new vision for what public investment 
could do both for the economy, but also for important outcomes like taking on climate change would win the day. And we're really happy to be a small part for right now, winning the day on these issues. <laughs> you know, Let's circle back in October and see what's happened with the jobs plan and the families plan. But I would argue that the fact that Senator Sanders just put out a budget resolution that exceeds what President Biden had contemplated and the jobs plan and the families plan combined suggests that we're moving in a very different direction. He views that as possible. He thinks that healthcare needs to be added to the mix. I agree. Uh, and I think we can absolutely afford it. Um, and I think that really suggests a new way of looking at things. We're definitely not out of the woods. Even the passage of these plans, plus Bernie's plans, you know, won't be enough. We're going to have persistent racial inequality that is going to take a long time you know, to address and is not going to be addressed with a single piece of federal legislation. We're going to have a lot more to do on the climate crisis. We're going to have a lot more to do on our democracy, particularly if we can't get rid of the filibuster. But um, I think Groundwork is here in a really important moment and we're playing a small but um, vital role. Is there a question I should have asked that I didn't? I don't know. I don't think so. I feel like this has been a really, a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I, I have too. And I appreciate you taking the time. It's an honor. Is there anything else you want to say? So two things. The first is that I think that at some point, the economic debate is going to subside a bit. Focus on inflation, I think, will be less prevalent after we get through some of these transitory COVID supply chain bottlenecks. The unemployment rate is going to tick back down. We're going to be in the fours. People are going to be talking about a Biden boom. And I would say that it is so important for folks to remember that we have not recovered until everyone has recovered. And an unequal recovery is not not acceptable. We know exactly who is going to still be unemployed in September when the unemployment insurance expires. We know who's going to be unemployed a year from now. We also know that the amount of rental arrears that people have racked up during this period is incredible. And the types of folks who are more likely to be evicted uh, we really have to keep our eye on full and equitable recovery and not get lost in the excitement and the numbers moving in the right direction and the indicators moving in the right direction because those average measures don't tell the full story. And um, there's going to be a lot of work to do even after we get out of the woods here. Is that one of two things or is that both two things? <laughs> <laughs> I think that the consensus on what is possible for spending in Washington has shifted dramatically. I am in conversations all week with folks who cut their teeth as political operatives in the 90s and folks who are political consultants today. And they love, love, love to lecture me about not using the T word and how you can't, you can't talk about the size of these bills. Like it's just totally political suicide and it's totally unacceptable. And, and they're wrong. Public opinion on this is really clear. The American Rescue Act becomes more popular when folks know the price tag. You do a sample of people who don't see the price tag, a sample of people who see the price tag, more popular with the price tag. Why is that? COVID is a big problem. A recession is a big problem. Folks know that you need a big solution. Uh, I think the same is true of the climate crisis. Folks know that you can't solve the climate crisis with a couple of windmills and a tax credit and some pencil shavings. Uh, you're going to have to spend big now uh, to save the future. And I think the consensus on this is really shifting. The Washington political consulting class may be the last to find out that the consensus is, sh is shifting, but the polling is clear on this. The conversations we have with folks across the country are clear on this. And, you know, I think Senator Sanders is clear on this. And folks in Congress are going to follow suit. I appreciate the optimism. <laughs> we will see the, what the future holds. <laughs> I hope you're right. Nice to talk to you. That was Lindsay Owens. Lindsay is at groundworkcollaborative.org. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.